So by way of review, we're talking about the conscience, man's awareness of what is right and wrong, and not just that something is right or wrong, the conscience also sort of tells you the rightness of it and the wrongness, like you should feel right about it and feel wrong about it. That's a healthy conscience. We've talked about how the conscience is a universal thing. Genesis chapter 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, they were immediately given a conscience. The response to, to eating, the, eating the, the fruit is, were naked and ashamed, and they felt shame, and that was, a, that was appropriate. That was a proper use of their conscience. It's not, um, with, with man's lustful issues, it's not okay to just walk around naked. Okay? All right. We don't feel like we have to do that topic. Um, and then we've talked about, in Romans 2, how it's proven that whenever somebody makes a, a judgment on something, they're actually showing that they believe in absolute morality. They be, their conscience is working. They're proving their conscience because when they go, hey, you shouldn't do that. And they're like, oh, so there's shoulds and shouldn'ts is there. You know, there's a, there's a moral law. And that's actually, well, sometime, other time we'll get into this, but that's the moral argument for God's existence. Not the argument of, from God's existence to morality, but the argument from morality to God. Because he's the only rational explanation for real morals. And no other worldview that's godless, especially an atheistic or deistic worldview, it doesn't have any grounding for morality. And, um, and people have a hard time accepting that, and they should, because <laughs> morals are real. We all have, just like we all have eyes and we all see things, we all have a moral sense and we perceive that morals are there. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about how conscience accuses us. We talked about that verse in Romans, how it accuses or excuses us. How it accuses us before we've sinned to keep us from doing it. And then after we've sinned, it seems to go into high gear. Because now it's not only telling you what's wrong, it's telling you you did what's wrong. And so you feel it's this guilt. And that guilt ideally should drive you to the Lord. That's the goal of guilt, is to drive you to repentance and, and to God. And mismanaged guilt actually do, uh, in, our, in our DV program here, I do a whole class on mismanaged guilt. How people take guilt and instead of repenting, they just get angry. And that's them mismanaging their guilt. I, I think anger for guys especially, but also for ladies, is a natural response to guilt that I don't want to handle the right way. And um, interestingly, but that's a mishandling of the conscience. And we also talked about how the conscience excuses us. How it tells you, no, 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 you did the right thing. I know they're upset with you. I know they're irritated by you, but you did the right thing. To, um, I think that all this probably brought up some very obvious questions in your minds. And I think we're going to deal with some of those questions today. Um, maybe you thought, what about when people's consciences don't agree? And like saying husband and wife, we, we, it turns out we don't always agree on everything. <laughs> and I know husbands, husband and wives where one of them thinks that alcohol is, is, is just wrong. Don't, there's no occasion when it's okay to drink alcohol. And the other one says, no, I think it's okay to drink it on these occasions and for these reasons. And so then how should they handle this as a, as a married couple? You know? or, um, or issues like, say, which day do we worship on? And people don't agree on what day they're supposed to worship the Lord on, uh, say Sunday or Saturday. Those are typically the, the days that they um, debate between. Or tattoos. This question actually, believe it or not, comes up in the high school ministry more than any other question. All I can say is, kids, think a little deeper about life. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just about tattoos. But it does come up an awful lot. And so we, not recently though, interestingly. But, um, but tattoos are, are a, a lasting fad in our culture, but people feel vastly different about tattoos. And especially 40, 50 years ago, a tattoo meant one thing, and then nowadays it seems to mean something else. But does it still mean something else to the person who was around 40 years ago and remembers what it meant back then? And so this, this is a, a, a conscience issue. Uh, language is another one of those issues. 
what words are okay for a Christian to say. And I mean, I'm not talking about the obvious ones. I'm talking about the other ones, you know, that are just like, I could, I could give a list, but I feel as though I might be wounding someone's conscience. But, uh, <laughs> but here's a list, right? Blah, 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 right? You, you, can, you can imagine some of these words. And I bet anybody who's, who has, who's a parent has had conversations about which words are appropriate and which words aren't with their kids. And anyone who's had kids has suddenly come to the realization that some words are not okay as soon as you had kids. And people who don't have kids, they're the ones, and maybe me too, who think that there are more words are okay than not. <laughs> Interesting how that works, huh? Um, entertainment, what you watch on TV, what shows are okay. Is it, it, are all rated R movies automatically evil? Or, and maybe it's wrong. I'm just saying this is some people's conscience. I've heard many Christians say, I will not watch a rated R movie. I've heard other believers say like, oh, well, I might watch some. Others go, I won't even watch PG-13. And, and my thought on it is that the truth is definitely valid. I mean, you won't make a mistake by, only watch, by never watching a rated R movie. <laughs> that's for sure. You won't, you won't hurt yourself by doing that. But, but what, what, should, what should we do when we don't agree about it? I mean, The Passion of the Christ is a rated R movie. Should I go, can I watch that? Or is this one appropriate or inappropriate? What's the deal here? Um, ungodly friends. I mean, hopefully we all have people we care about who care about us that are not walking with the Lord. Hopefully we have them in our lives. But how close should I get with them? How much time should I spend with them? This is an issue of conscience. So these are some of the issues that come up, as well as what happens when the conscience just is wrong. Is just is off in some way or another. So I want to start off with, I think, four malfunctions of the conscience. Based on the Bible, here's what the scripture says about when the conscience does not work properly. And if you would turn to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. Jeremiah 6, 15. The first malfunction of the conscience I'll talk about is a seared conscience or a conscience that fails to accuse. It should accuse, but it's not. It's not giving that sense of wrongness about the thing I'm doing. I'm doing something bad, and I'm not really feeling how I ought to about it, or I'm thinking about doing something bad, and I'm not feeling it. Jeremiah 6.15, it talks about the people of God in their rebellion against God. Jeremiah actually is a, a book written to a bunch of rebels, and it says this, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. Were they ashamed? Did they feel shame? Was the conscience accusing them correctly? No, they were not ashamed. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. I think it was uh, Billy Graham who said, I'm shocked by what doesn't shock me anymore. Realizing that this is a failure of the conscience because of our exposure to culture and the things that are going on, I'm shocked by what doesn't shock me anymore. And they, they did not even know how to blush. And so God's going to deal with them. He's going to punish them, cast them down as the scripture gets into the details there. But the point here is this is just an example that it is, re it is real that sometimes the conscience fails to bring about that feeling of the wrongness. Notice I'm not saying that you're not aware of what's right and wrong. I'm saying you're not ashamed of what's wrong and approving of what's right. You don't feel. It's the feeling side of it that's messed up here. This is actually what, what we call a sociopath. A person who's a sociopath is an extreme version of this. A sociopath, unlike maybe the modern TV version of these things, a sociopath is aware of right and wrong. They just don't feel any, any sort of shame about what's wrong. 
and they don't really feel any particular strength of goodness, you know, ugh, about what's right. So if you help someone, if you like, you help save somebody's life and you walk away from that, you're, you feel great. Man, it helps save that person's life. Or if you're driving down the street and you run over like a litter of kittens. Yeah, you feel bad. It's wrong to run over litters of kittens. It's just, this is an inappropriate thing to do in life, you know. And you feel wrong, and then your, your conscience is trying to tell you, was that your fault? Were you driving too fast? Were you not paying attention? Well, whose fault was that? But this failure to convict can happen to us. It's not about whether we know it's right or wrong. It's about whether we feel the badness or wrongness of it, and whether we feel the goodness or rightness of it. I think that um, repeated sin causes this. Repeated, repeated sin, ignoring God's commands, ignoring the correction we receive, and just continuing in my sin. Eventually, I get to the point where I'm like, I used to feel bad about this, but I really don't feel bad about it. And I think that should scare you. As a, as a, as a Christian, as a believer, your follower of Christ, especially if a non-believer, you have lots of reasons to be scared. But if you're, if you're a believer and you feel like, I know I'm doing something wrong, like I know it's wrong here, but here it's like I don't even know what's going on. And this is, I think, what happens oftentimes in the, in the midst of someone who carries on with a long-term affair during their marriage. They just stop feeling the wrongness of something. You know, their conscience is totally messed up. So um, let's continue. I'll talk about how to cure these in a moment, but let's just run through the, the malfunctions as they come. Malfunction number two, I'll call this a lying conscience. A lying conscience. Um, in other words, a conscience that excuses you when it shouldn't. It tells you something's okay that is not okay. So you see the, the, the seared conscience is one where I know it's wrong, I just don't really feel it's wrong. But the lying conscience is like, no, I'm really starting to think that this is okay. I actually had a really crazy experience one time where I went with uh, a lady to confront her husband who was cheating on her. And she had said, can you, I, I don't want to go alone. Can you, can you guys, and me and another lady went with this lady to confront her husband. And she was, he was in the house with this woman he was committing adultery with. And she knocks on the door. And then he opens up, or excuse me, she opens up the lady that was living there who was uh, committing adultery with this woman's husband. And she's like, where's my husband? Da, da, da. He, turns out he was hiding in the bathroom. Now, their two reactions at this point taught me something really interesting. That he was hiding in the bathroom because he knew how wrong this was and he was hiding from it. He was ashamed. It's like Adam. He knew it was wrong and he ate the fruit anyway. But Eve, the scripture says, was deceived. She was actually tricked. She actually was thinking, yeah, maybe God's wrong and maybe Satan over here is right and I eat this and good things will happen to me. She was deceived, the scripture says. And this was like a, like a picture of Adam and Eve right here because the woman stood there bold-faced, like with arrogant pride. And I sat there and I, my jaw dropped and I like lost words. I didn't know what to say. And she's like, you're my husband and da, 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 da. And she's heartbroken and she's hurt. And then she turns and she looks us right in the eye and she just says, we love each other. And in her mind, we love each other was a legitimate justification for an affair. So this is an example of a, of a lying conscience. The conscience is excusing you when you're, you have no excuse. And so I, I, he came out of the bathroom at that point, and I didn't know what else to say. I turned to them and I said, look, you know what you're doing is wrong, and you, you are so deceived. What are you doing? And it was weird because when I said that, that was pretty much all I said, actually. And when I said that, like, I saw her face like change from pride to like, like, huh? <laughs> It was the weirdest thing. That woman came up to me about three years later and she came to Hosanna and she found me and she wanted to shake my hand and thank me 
because she goes, I really thought things were okay. And when you said that to me that I was deceived, I just, it's like, it's like the light turned on. And she goes, and I repented and I got right with the Lord. And I just wanted to say thank you for, for that, for telling me. And, and what happened was her conscience was, was alerted and awake, awakened. And, but that, that is an, um, a lying conscience, excusing when it shouldn't. Turn to Isaiah chapter 50, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah 5, 20. This is a justification thing. We are amazing at justifying things. Have you noticed that? I could justify just about anything. Anything it is that I need to do, I mean, oh, it's, it's easily justifiable. We are accomplished liars, but the person who we tend to lie to the most is ourselves. And so one of the, one of the issues here is, is a, lying, a lying attitude, a lying heart. And in Isaiah 5, verse 20, God addresses it. He says, whoa, whoa, bad news to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Have you ever been to a sushi restaurant for the first time and your friend offers you a big scoop of guacamole? (laughs) I would never do that to a friend of mine. I've heard stories though. And they go in there, and, they, and of course those people never ever want sushi in their life again because of that horrible experience. And they get a mouthful of what's called Japanese horseradish or wasabi. It's just a ground up horseradish is pretty much what it is. And it, it clears you out. I mean, you're basically sneezing like without any air coming out. Just, just, it just clears you out. And it's great a little bit, but not a lot. Now what do they do? They put evil for good. That's what they did. They put light for darkness. They put, they put wasabi for guacamole is what they did. <laughs> and that's what we're doing to ourselves when we justify. We're just trying to make ourselves feel good about something that's evil. And God condemns this. But this is a legitimate biblical thing. Or legitimate in the sense that it, the Bible addresses it. I think that the modern day pro-choice movement is so wrapped up in this sort of thinking that it's ridiculous. They go, we're pro-choice. They're putting evil for good. They're saying it's about choice, but it's not. This is about murder. We've never considered murder a choice. But by calling it pro-choice, it forces you to think of it in those terms. A woman has a right to choose what to do with her own body. I agree. I agree, but this is about somebody else's body. She's not removing a part of her own body here. She's murdering her child. And God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And I think this abortion issue, if I, if I can speak honestly about it, is the biggest moral issue of our day. And next to the gospel, there is no bigger issue in our culture that we need to be addressing. I can't think of one. The murder of millions and millions of innocents. We have at this point, in Amer- just in America, since Roe v. Wade, we have committed more abortions that we're aware of than the entire population of Canada. Well over 50 million. And they say, oh, oh yeah, great strides in women's rights. This isn't about women's rights. The majority of those aborted are women. Little tiny baby women. It's, uh, it's tragedy. And when our conscience becomes awake to that, that's what we need in our culture. Our culture has conscience issues big time. Talk about a malfunction. And... Um, uh, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Romans 12, 18. 
One of the most common false ways we justify sin, we get our conscience, we lie to our conscience or get it to lie to us, whatever, however you want to couch that, is here in Romans 12, verse 18. See if you can catch, what is this? This is a really common way in which we justify sin. Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Then, as if anticipating our excuses for not doing that. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I do think it means coals of fire. I mean, symbolically, but it's like, if you just let it go and you bless when you're cursed, if they don't repent, I will deal with them. Don't worry. Don't worry. But then here's the real issue for you. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When other people's sins become my excuse to sin, I'm overcome by evil. Last week I mentioned how flesh hooks flesh. Their flesh hooks into my flesh, and pretty soon we're both in the flesh. We're both sinning against one another, and then it becomes this, this pattern where we're, you know, and we're both wrong. We're both overcome by evil at that point. But as a believer, my conscience should be so clean, so right with the Lord, that even when others are sinning against me directly, I don't even think that's an excuse for me to sin. I don't think it's okay for me to now do something evil. And if I can say to the single people here, you get this right now, you'll have a good marriage. Because so often, it's the justifications that hit us in our minds to mistreat our spouse because we feel mistreated. And it's not, I mean, it's totally anti, it's against the scripture. I mean, God's protecting us from this. Yes, it'll be there. The temptation will be there. But let your conscience be clear on this issue. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Bless when you are cursed. I, I've heard a story about a guy who uh, went to a counselor and he said, hey, counselor, I, I, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I was living with, you know, my wife and it's, it's gotten to the point now where it's like, it's like, I don't, it's like she's my sister instead of my wife now. And uh, I, I, I just, I don't want to be with her anymore. It's just sad. And he goes, well, you know, what does the Bible say? It says, love your sister. Love your brothers, love your sisters. He says, oh. but you don't understand. You don't understand. It's, 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 it's not just that. It's not just that she's cold and it's like a sister. It's, it's like, I don't even know this woman anymore. You know, who I married, I don't even know who she is. It's like she's a total stranger. You know, it's like she's just like my neighbor. And the Bible says, love your neighbor though, doesn't it? It says, supposed to love your neighbor. And he goes, no, you don't understand. It's like, it's like, okay, she sabotages me deliberately. She purposely does things to harm me and to make my life miserable. It's like she's, it's like she's my enemy. It's like I'm living with my enemy. That's what it's like. And the counselor looks and says, you know what the Bible says about your enemies? <laughs> and there's just no way around it. The scripture's like, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love those who hate you. That pretty much includes everybody on earth because whether they're hating you or if it's something less extreme, they're still in that category of love that person, extend love and grace towards them. So that lying conscience is there to make us feel good about our own failures, but ultimately it, we get burned, like wasabi burn in the end. Never doubt the ability of the imagination of mankind. We are so imaginative, although it's folly when you really think about it. When you really think about it, it's foolishness. Um, I actually heard one person justifying abortion. He said, well, it's not, it's not that she's murdering the baby. You see, here's what's happening. She's, she's simply refusing the use of her organs to the child. 
So she's not, she's not, I'm mean, not kidding. This was, this was a college educated young man, intelligent young man, who was going back and forth a discussion with me on it, uh, peacefully back and forth, but talking about a heavy issue. And he said, she's just denying the use of her organs. That's it. And so I tried to ex explain how, like, if a firefighter was carrying someone out of a fire, and he said, you know, it's not that I want to throw you into the fire, but I want to de deny you the use of my organs <laughs> to get you out of the fire. So I'm just going to set you down here, and I'm going to get on my way. This is, this is insane. This is such a foolish and insane thing. Um, so that would be a lying conscience. And there's other scriptures that talk about that as well. And um, uh, the, number, the third malfunction, though, malfunction number three, at least I'm calling it number three, they overlap each other in different ways, but it helps me to categorize things, is a weak conscience. A third kind is a weak conscience. And if you would, please turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. A weak conscience is a term that Paul uses in his epistles to refer to somebody who is too easily convicted. They feel bad when, they, when they're doing something that might not even be bad. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And it says here, now the, the issue they're dealing with is idols, things, food offered to idols. They go to the market, they buy food, but that food's been offered to an idol first. And they're like, should I eat it? Should I not eat it? It says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, <laughs> but love edifies. So he immediately is like, yeah, maybe some of you know that it's okay to eat this meat because idols are nothing. But others of you, you you're fearful. You're like, I don't know. I just feel bad about it. It's kind of like the guy who says, I came out of that rocker drug culture and I just cannot listen to that music because it feels like I'm back in it. Like there's a guy with a weak conscience about that music. Does that make sense? That's the weak conscience. <clears throat> so uh, verse uh, two, and if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. <laughs> you think, oh, but I, oh, I know about this. And I, it's not about knowledge here. He's going to redirect our, our issue on conscience to, to love instead of what we know. Verse 4, um, oh, excuse me, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. So there's, there's only one God. There's no polytheism stuff going on. It's just one God. For even there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, like Thor and Zeus and whatever, you name it the flying spaghetti monster of atheism. You know, there's all these different gods out there, supposedly, but they're not really, they don't really exist. They're just in name only. And then uh, verse six, yet for us, there is one God, the father of whom are, uh, the father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not everyone's aware of all that theology. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat, uh, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak, weak conscience, is defiled. So that they eat this meat from the market back then and they go, oh man, I know that this was offered to Thor or offered to Athena before it came to me. And they're raised in that culture and that culture still has like maybe even a superstitious impact on them. But it's there and they're eating it and they're feeling like they're participating in this pagan religion. And so they are, their conscience is weak. They're not doing something wrong, but they think they are, and so they are. This is a, 
bit of a confusing thing, but let me continue and it will become more clear as we go. Verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So in reality, food doesn't matter. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak, that weak conscience. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who's weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I think that as we, as we read about the weak conscience, we're going to get into more detail a little bit later in the study. But I just want to establish the, the fact that there is such thing as a weak conscience. The scripture talks about it. And the term when you read that, you read it in a couple different places. It refers to somebody who thinks something is wrong even though it's not. I have totally been that person. Absolutely. I'm not ashamed of it. I think I just realized like, okay, well that actually describes me, <laughs> at least in certain areas of life. Um, when it comes to certain things, my conscience is very sensitive and I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm violating my conscience to do that. I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to mess with that. I'm not going to do that. And this is, this is in a sense a malfunction. And I want to describe what it can do. Um, the weak conscience can make something that's okay bad, but it cannot make something that's bad okay. I can make my own life more strict, but I cannot give myself more freedoms. I can't make adultery okay with my conscience, but I can make Facebook not okay with my conscience because I'm on there and I'm tempted with this and that and so then it becomes, and I'm like, oh, I can't handle this. Okay, well then you shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean it's wrong for everybody, but maybe it's wrong for you. That's the issue of conscience. It can make your life more strict, but it can't make it less. That's what I'm saying. So that when we say to people, well, I don't feel convicted about that. That doesn't mean it's necessarily okay. It just means you don't feel convicted about it. <laughs> That's all it means. Um, so yeah, 1 Corinthians there in verse eight, or chapter 8 talks a lot about this. You could definitely study it on your own. There's two solutions to this weak conscience issue. Let's say that you have a weak conscience and it's about the issue of alcohol. And you feel all alcohol is wrong. Um, I used to think all alcohol was sin. I thought it was like a sinful substance. And lo and behold, I grew up with an alcoholic parent. Um, so no duh, why I would think that. Um, as I studied the scriptures more and more, I, I was like, Jesus, you drank? Like, <laughs> Oh, like, I don't really like that. Like, I don't feel very good about that. And I realized it was my weak conscience that had such a hard time with it. And even to this day, I don't drink. And I, I, if, if there, like, if I came home and there was like a beer sitting in my fridge, I would feel as though sin was in my house. And that will not, that will not be in my home. Um, and I don't want it in my home. And I remember um, uh, one time we were cooking with alcohol, cooking with wine. It was a cooking wine. And I was trying to get the bottle open. And I got the bottle open, and it popped and spilled on me. And I was like, ah! Like, I freaked out. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to take a shower. Like, I took off. The smell, like, brought back all these memories and stuff like that. And I mean, I, uh, so I was just like, ah! Like, because I mean, I like the Jack Daniels hamburgers. But to some people, right, that would, and I don't remember what we were cooking. Some kind of pasta sauce thing. And, but to some people, though, even that would be sin to them. 
then they shouldn't do it. So th this is the issue of the conscience. Now, alcohol obviously has strict rules in the scripture. And, there's, and there, it may be a good idea to abstain from it entirely in our culture, as opposed to if we lived in Germany or somewhere else. But it's not inherently an evil substance like what I kind of thought in my mind, as the scripture has revealed to me. And I reluctantly concede. So I won't try and put a huge burden on everybody because I realize that's my weak conscience. So that, that's, the, that's how the weak conscience is. And there's two cures for the weak conscience. One, you get educated and you, and you genuinely, genuinely realize this is actually okay. I used to feel bad about this, but then I found out that it really, really, truly is fine. And I don't even feel anything bad about it. And I'm okay now. And I've just grown as a person. The other cure, which is probably the better choice to take than trying to force educate yourself into feeling different, because good luck changing your feelings, you abstain. That's it. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say you have to fix a weak conscience. It just says obey your weak conscience. There, you should be under no compulsion to feel like you have to make yourself feel okay about things you don't feel okay about. If you have a weak conscience, it's okay. So do a lot of people. And the scripture just says, hey, obey your conscience. Because if you, if you eat or do something thinking it's evil, thinking it's sin, then, then you're sinning. Because in your heart, you're sinning. So obey that conscience. Don't violate your conscience. That's, that's the, the principle we learned there. Now, um, the, the fourth malfunction, the last one, is as opposed to a, a weak conscience, which is convicting you when you're not convicted, the fourth one's actually very dangerous, I think, to a Christian. It's condemning you when you're not condemned. And here's where I want to distinguish between conviction and condemnation. Conviction meaning I feel bad about something. Condemnation meaning I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. That's condemnation, like ultimately, finally, cast aside and apart from God. That's a condemning conscience. Now, this, mouth, this is actually appropriate sometimes. There's a certain terror that we should feel when we know that we have sinned and there's judgment coming and we don't have Jesus. That's appropriate to be driven to the cross out of fear, a bright fear, genuine fear, because you know you need Jesus. But if you are a Christian and you are saved and you're feeling and you're fighting with constant condemnation, then this is definitely not good then you have a, a conscience that's just beating you down when there's no reason to beat you down. Uh, I have definitely been there. In fact, I spent a lot of my early Christian life that way. It was I, partially my own fault because I just didn't read the Bible very much. You know, and I didn't really study the scriptures. And I had God so many times by his spirit, like he'd show me something and I'd be like, oh, he still loves me. And I mean, genuinely relieved because I was like, oh, okay, I'm not lost. And then slowly as I got theology, and I realized what it meant when Jesus died. And I understood Hebrews and I got what it meant that I have, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. Then I just started going like, wow, I'm forgiven. Like I'm like eternally forgiven. Like, I'm his. I'm positionally in Christ. And I read Ephesians 1 through 3 and actually paid attention. <laughs> you know, and, and then my attitude really changed and man, it liberated me so much. I have less wrinkles on my face because of this. I don't start all of my prayers with, Lord, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> of this constant feeling of condemnation. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, 
It's not saying there is condemnation to those who are in Jesus who walk in the flesh. No, it's a description of what it means to be in Christ. You don't walk in the flesh, you walk in the spirit. But there's no condemnation for you. I love this. Sometimes your heart condemns you and you feel as though you are lost and apart from God. But yet, turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. This scripture liberated me. I hope it encourages you. If you're feeling this overwhelming sense of guilt, of condemnation, as though your sins can't be forgiven by Jesus' blood. 1 John 3.20 says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Maybe it's okay to realize that sometimes for Christians, there's times where maybe your heart's condemning you and you go, Lord, but I don't trust my heart. I trust in Christ. And just go, all right, Lord, you work on my heart, but I'm just going to rest and trust in Christ. That fourth malfunction is a really big deal because it keeps you from serving the Lord in your life, I think, if you're feeling that condemnation. Or people do serve, but they serve in like this sort of panicky, like, like a chihuahua. You know what I mean? Like, this, like, the, like the, you know how chihuahuas are. They, just, they like live under constant anxiety attacks. And some people serve the Lord like that, as though like everything they're doing is sort of trying to compensate for uh, a lack of something in their salvation. And they need to just stop, slow down, read slowly Ephesians 1 through 3, and learn what it means to be positionally in Christ, holy and without blame before him in love. But, but, but what about this other sin? I did this, but I did this. Did he know about that? Are you kidding? All your sins were future when Jesus died. He made a future payment for all of them. And they're not a surprise to him. Really? <laughs> oh, that's good news. And you notice this, for real believers, this is not encouragement to sin. It's just encouragement to trust and love God. I don't go out and go sin more so grace can abound. I've never met a Christian with that attitude. Never. I don't think grace encourages us to sin. It just encourages us. <laughs> And so be encouraged by that and realize that, well, like he said to the Galatians, if you can't be encouraged by that gentle encouragement of 1 John 3.20, if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and knows all things, well, then you can be uh, encouraged by the, the less gentle encouragement of Galatians 3.3, where he says, oh, are you so foolish? <laughs> are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You got saved by grace. Are you now going to be made perfect by works? Don't you realize it's grace that sustains you from day to day? It's grace that secures your place before God. It's by grace he saved you and by grace he keeps you. And so uh, you can read Galatians. If Ephesians doesn't work and you need some more in-your-face encouragement, well, that'd be Galatians. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, how do we fix our malfunctioning conscience? Um, for that, uh, if you would, turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. The first, there's a few things we can do to fix all these different ways our consciences just do mess up. I mean, I've identified at least three of them that apply to me, <laughs> so don't feel bad if they, uh, if they apply to you. I feel as though we're like, it's like the compass, you know, we all have, uh, we all have our compasses off, off of true north, and God's trying to pull us over to a correct view, or maybe eyesight's a better thing. I mean, I've got... You know, I'm farsighted and I've got astigmatism in one of these eyes. I forget which one. So if I take my glasses off and I look at the moon, it's not round. You know, it's, it's like that. 
So I think that God's giving us with the scripture, he gives us corrective lenses to straighten things out. Our view of things gets changed by the Bible. And um, one of the ways to fix a malfunctioning conscience is the word of God. So 2 Kings 22, verse 1, we read about Josiah. He was a good king. 2 Kings 22. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. That's impressive. Um, he actually was under the stewardship of another man until he got older. And uh, he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name uh, was Jedidah, uh, excuse me, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And there's a lot of names in here, so I'll try to speed through them. But, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways, all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So when he, when he turned 18, he sort of came into his own leadership. He was under the stewardship of others and 18 years old. He's like, okay, I'm going to start running the place. That the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up, to, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it to the hand of those doing the work who are overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. So there was money that was coming in to take care of the temple every year, but it wasn't being used and hadn't been for a long time. So the money's just sitting there, collecting. And so Josiah's like, hey, the temple's in shambles. Get the money from the treasury that's allotted for the temple. Give it to the priests. Tell them to take care of the place. So then, um, let's see, we are, verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. This is crazy, right? <laughs> they go to clean the temple out finally after years of disrepair or whatever. And they're cleaning the temple out and he's like, oh, it's the book of the law. Uh, like, I should probably tell someone about this. And so they send word up the chain to the king. Oh, we found the book of the law. And uh, Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king. It's good when you go to people who were in leadership and you first tell them, I did what you told me to and I have something else to tell you. <laughs> They like that. Um, Hilkiah, the, high, the priest, has given me a book. <laughs> so, and Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Now that was a, a sign of grieving and mourning. They would literally tear their clothing to say, and it, it wasn't like a weird showy thing. It was just a natural, oh, they tear their clothes, maybe put dirt on their head if they were grieving. He tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Akbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, Asiah, and Asiah the servant, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. What am I saying? I'm saying the word of God arouses the conscience. And as they read the Bible, which they had ignored and thought they were, thought they were fine. Oh yeah, we're doing what, what God told Moses until they read what God told Moses. 
And we're like, oh no. We are in so much trouble. He tears his clothes. He's like, quick, start fixing things. And this leads to an awesome revival in the land of Israel. In fact, revivals are almost always in the Bible prefaced or started by a renewed interest in the Bible. Constantly, they read God's word and boom, revival. In fact, look at the, some of the great revivals of our time. What, I mean, Calvary Chapel is a great revival of our time. And what is it all about? We're like, well, what's your secret? What do you do, Pastor Chug? Oh, you know, he just, he just, I just teach the Bible verse by verse. That's it. But no, come on. What is it? What's the, what's the thing? What's the thing? That's it. That, the whole point of this thing is just that we might know what the Bible says about these different issues of our lives. We're cracking it open to look at it in a new, fresh way. Maybe you've had the Bible your whole life, but you didn't know what it said about this. And so that's, that's what we're doing. Because I do believe it brings revival. And I do believe it transforms our lives. And it also awakens the conscience. So the word of God awakens the conscience. There's other scripture uh, passages that confirm that as well. But for the sake of time, um, I mean, you could read Nehemiah and how Ezra, Ezra the scribe came in and they read the word and the people like totally straightened up their act, you know, because all of a sudden they're like, whoa, we're not doing what this says. So um, just reading the Bible is a way to awaken the conscience. This will fix, I mean, just about any malfunction you've got, this can fix. And um, another one is good teaching. Just reading the Bible itself is important, but also getting good teaching is also important. So Jeremiah 6, verse 13, if you'd like to go there, I would say um, this is going to be an example of how bad teaching dulls the conscience. And I think we can conclude that the opposite of this, good teaching awakens it. Jeremiah 6.13, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, the leaders, the teachers, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Do you recognize this verse now? We were just there earlier. Here's the reason why they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. No, not at all. They didn't know how to blush. Why? Because there were false prophets and teachers going to them saying, peace. Oh, God loves you. He doesn't have a problem with the way you're living your life. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Relax. It's okay. Homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle. It's not a real issue. God loves you. Peace, peace, peace. And God's like, no, there is no peace. There's no peace. You have, you have, all you've done is killed the conscience of the people so they can't be ashamed of their sin. There's times where we as Christians, we talked about this last week, we're, we're actually called to lovingly expose sin, to alert and awaken the conscience of those around us so they can see how bad things are. And so good teaching, good teaching does this just like bad teaching does the opposite of this. And um, you, what we say as amongst the pastor circles is you, um, you comfort the afflicted, right? People come into the church and they're downcast, they're beat up over their sin issues and they're beat up and because of life and you bring them the comfort and the truth and the peace and the hope of God, but you afflict the comfortable. <laughs> so if they're all comfortable, they're like, no, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I'm solid. I got this. I got that. I got that. that, that. And then it's like, no, you're just not paying attention to your issues because <laughs> we've all got issues from the, till, till the day I go to heaven and get rid of this rotten, stinking flesh. Then I can be like, no, I'm good. <laughs> But until then, I need to be receiving some affliction, not just, not just comfort. And um, so good teaching. The next thing that helps to straighten out our crooked conscience can be confession. Um, 
Jeremiah 2.26 says this, as the thief is ashamed when he is found out, and then it goes on to talk about another issue, but it's just assuming the truth of the statement, a thief, when he's caught, he's ashamed. Not before. Oh, he was proud. He thought he was doing really good. He thought he had the top of the world. He's got it set. But when he gets his face plastered all over the news, when all of a sudden everybody knows who you are and what you've done, now you're ashamed. And I can say this is why confession is so good for the soul. Because it awakens the conscience. This is why inter, um, interventions happen, I think. It's also why we should rebuke one another sometimes. Sometimes, not every time. May God give us wisdom and grace and consider ourselves before we do anything to others in those regards. But, but this is good. This is, so intervention, what they do is they confront you with your sin issue, right? They're like pull someone aside and go, hey, this is what effect it's having on me. And they're just telling them what is obvious to everyone else. And then they're caught and then they're ashamed. But that shame is good and healthy because it brings them to a place of change and repentance and transformation. I only rebuke those who I have hope for. If I have no hope for you, I just let you live off in your thing. <laughs> just do what you want, man. Why, why bother correcting you? You're just on your way to doom. What's the point? But God corrects us because he loves us. And so exposing is a beautiful and healthy thing if it's done in a biblical way. Um, I feel that I have to encourage you guys in this because most of us, if you're like me, your inclination is just to overlook issues because you just, it's, I want to avoid the conflict. But there are times when I have to go against that inclination to honor the Lord and to actually help somebody. Um, so like Galatians 6 says, consider myself lest I also be tempted. Uh, pull the plank out of my own eye like Matthew 7 says. And then I can go over there and see clearly to try and help my friend. So the thief is ashamed. Confession is, is um, there's something that happens. When you say something out loud, it becomes more real. You're admitting it. You're confessing to it. And so if I have an issue, if I go before the Lord and I'm like, I'm dead on this issue, Lord. I don't even feel bad about this thing, but I know it's a big problem in my life. So then I speak out loud to God about that issue. I can also maybe pick another person, a believer, to confess it to as well. Someone I trust. Someone who I know will still love me. Someone who I respect. Someone who's godly. And I go, hey, I have a problem. And I just need to, I just need to talk to someone about it. And I confess to them. And you watch how real it becomes to your conscience. And all of a sudden, you're like, okay, I feel bad, but I sure feel healthy. <laughs> okay, Lord, you know, and you can move forward in a, in a good way. In a good way. So um, that's a difficult thing, but, it, but it's for real. It's, it's legit. I also think pain can, can awaken the conscience in a way that sometimes nothing else can. Um, Psalm 119, verse 67, it's great. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. <laughs> Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Oh, I was doing, I was doing fine. I was, I was living it up. I've, I've talked to so many believers where they're like, man, I, I just kind of forgot about the Lord. I was, doing, I was doing really good in business. I had a lot of money. I had this going on. And then this, like my life just crashed down. And that's what caused me to say, man, my spirit is empty. And so sometimes pain causes us to say, okay, don't do that again. And it awakens the conscience as to how bad something is. Because pain demonstrates how bad something is. Um, yeah. You might warn your kid about not touching the stove, but it only takes one time for the stove to give the proper warning to your kid to never do that again. And sometimes, in fact, the scripture says that he who hears the rebukes of life will, ab will abide among the wise. It's in Proverbs. Uh, I love it. Life rebukes you on its own sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you get instabuked. 
you make a bad decision, boom, a bad consequence happens just like that. And uh, especially if you're married, and it always happens in front of your wife. <laughs> Another thing that can fix our bad conscience is the Holy Spirit. I mean, just drawing near to God. I mean, the Holy Spirit's not my conscience, but he certainly affects my conscience, accesses my conscience. And as I pray and seek the Lord and am filled with the Spirit, in fact, how often have you come in prayer and you're immediately aware of a sin issue? Because the Holy Spirit is awakening you to it. How many times you come and you start worshiping the Lord and all of a sudden, all your justifications for a bad attitude disappear? I think drawing near to God is the cure for a whole lot of things. And so, um, drawing near the Lord as he draws near to you as well when you do that. The Holy Spirit impacts your conscience. We are indwelt with the Spirit, yeah, but we don't necessarily, uh, we're, not, we're not full. We can be filled. We can be refilled and overflowing, which is very nice. And so, seek the Lord. Spend some time with God. Spend a, spend a moment of worship or prayer. Maybe you're, you're like, Lord, I just need you to wake up my conscience on this issue. Um, that's a good thing. As well as you'll find this works even to the unbeliever. I mean, they're like, oh, I'm not going to church. If I go there, the roof's going to fall in on me. They don't really think the roof's going to fall in on them. What they know is they're going to suddenly be even more aware of the issues in their own lives. And so they're like avoiding that uncomfortable moment. Um, but yet that's all the more reason. I mean, the, the more you don't want to go to church, the more you need to go to church. <laughs> that's pretty much the formula. So another one that will actually help us is simply obeying your conscience. Searing can come from consistent disobedience to the conscience. Someone starts by stealing a candy bar and pretty soon they're, you know, well maybe not pretty soon, but eventually they're stealing very big, very painfully from other people and not really thinking much about it. I think um, when people steal, especially from family members, people steal from their parents, from their siblings, and, and they don't even think anything about it. It doesn't even, it doesn't even bother them. They steal from mom. They, they make fraudulent checks in her name. And then they're like, good night, mom, I love you. And how hard-hearted they get. But if they just start obeying the conscience, what's really interesting is it starts to wake up on its own. And if I just begin to do the right thing because it's right, I will then start to actually see more clearly. And for instance, um, I have a, a cousin who got cancer and when she got cancer, she quit drinking. And all of a sudden, she and she was they drank a lot that's 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 the Vegas clan in my family they all party and they're not working with the Lord but she's drinking and she decides to stop so her friends are all coming over and they're all drinking and she's like you know what I hate being around drunk people you people are annoying when you're drunk and as soon as she was no longer doing the thing it was now repulsive to her how many people have I met who quit smoking and hate smoking they hate being around people that smoke it's like oh that's just repulsive and I'm like, I don't smoke and I've got more tolerance for it than they, <laughs> than they do because now they see clearly how bad it really was. How many people have ended a bad relationship? They obeyed God by breaking it up no matter how hard it was. And then they look back later and they go, it was worse than I ever thought it was. And so you just start obeying the conscience. It'll wake up on its own as well. I think that that's a natural thing. That's more from just life experience speaking there. And... Um, Actually, I think there's a scripture that really does support this, and it's in, let's turn to it. It's Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> See if you can follow me here. I think the scripture really is saying, if you, will, if you will walk in what is pleasing to God, then your conscience will wake up to a greater degree. 
Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, now here's the, here's the first part of the equation, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, accept, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So a living sacrifice, I will live for God, and holy is in there, as in I'll walk in holiness. I'll walk in what is right and true. And then, do not be conformed to this world. So I'm going to avoid worldliness and ungodliness and not copy the things of our, especially the things of our own culture that are ungodly. Um, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's interesting because really that, that you may prove or some scriptures say, some translations say approve what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Or if I can put it in like my own vernacular so that you can have discernment about what God wants you to do and not wants, doesn't want you to do. So here's the formula I see. I offer my body to the Lord to simply obey him daily. I, I make my effort to walk in holiness and to try to keep from being conformed to the worldliness I see around me. And then my mind gets renewed naturally. And I become one who has better discernment about what is right and what is wrong, what God approves of and disproves of. So as I just obey the Lord, I get better discernment. I think that that's actually what that scripture is talking about. And how many times have we read it? And maybe never, <laughs> maybe never seen that. I, I also see in uh, Proverbs 16, it says that if I will commit my works to the Lord, my thoughts will be established. So sometimes just obedience will, will begin to cleanse the mind as we walk in obedience. Just like disobedience will pollute the mind. Um, another thing that helps us out, <clears throat> I just have uh, one more. And this one might seem pretty obvious. Prayer. If you perhaps have an area of your life that this is drawing, that you're getting aware of, and you're like, you know what, there's something I should probably feel bad about that I really don't. There's something that I feel bad about that I really shouldn't. I'm feeling condemned, Lord, and I shouldn't. You know, if there's some area where you feel like you need your conscience corrected, try asking God about it. Lord, can you help me with this? I've become aware of it, and I, I pray that you'd fix it. I've had God answer these prayers. I want to have a conscience, Lord, that reflects you. Not so much me. And I believe God absolutely answers those prayers. So I encourage you to do that. And um, the, uh, the last thing I want to talk about for today, anyway, and for the, and for the topic of the conscience in general, is um, when consciences collide. So what do you do when your spouse, or I, I say that because that's what comes up a lot when you're married, right? I mean, spouses come up a lot when you're married. And, um, <clears throat> or maybe your pastor... Or maybe this ministry leader versus that ministry. Those of you who know us well, you could probably point out some conscience differences between, say, me or Pastor Nathan or Pastor Gary or Pastor Ken. And you might even be aware of some of these issues. So what are we supposed to do? Believe it or not, the Bible's very clear on how we should handle these issues. It's actually really clearly written out. And I rarely see people obey what it says. <laughs> but let's get into it so we can get better at doing that. Romans chapter 14. This will be the, uh, the place where we're going to just kind of sit for the rest of the, uh, the time. Romans 14. Now, someone who has a weak conscience, or in Romans 14, weak in the faith, is that person who is easily convicted about an issue that perhaps they shouldn't feel convicted about at all. Romans 12, uh, excuse me, 14 verse 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. 
Step one, don't argue over doubtful issues. If it is not clearly right or clearly wrong, do not make it a topic of debate. I'm not going to sit here and debate um, tattoos. Why would I not? Why would I debate that? Why am I going to bring that up? As scripture tells me, don't sit here and debate doubtful issues where there might easily be somebody on one side and easily be someone on the other side of the fence and it's not really all that important. It's a doubtful issue. So let's not make a big debate of it. Even though my personal feeling is that I don't like them. But I realize that's my personal feeling. And that's not my biblical teaching. And there's a vast difference between the two. So... Um, verse two, for one believes he may eat all things, but one, uh, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him. Who were you to judge another man's servant? So the first thing we learn here is if you have the, um, the weak conscience, then you're not supposed to judge the one that does do the thing that you can't do. The, in this case, eating of food. So I go, oh, I couldn't get a tattoo. I wouldn't feel good about that. And Steve's got one. And so secretly in my heart, I'm judging. I'm like, I won't say anything, but secretly, I think you're, you're like, you're in sin. And you're, you're messing up and you're really wrong. Even though I can't really show scripture that says that, and no, that Leviticus passage doesn't really say that. And we'll get into that. Actually, that's our next topic. I'll talk about that next. But... Um, but secretly, you know, so my bad would be judging him. Now, he could look at me and he could be like, Mike, he's so pathetic, he can't even get a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. So you see, the one with the liberty, this is what it's saying, the one with the liberty can despise or think less of the one who doesn't have it as this, oh, you're, you're piddly Christian, what's wrong with you? And then the one without the liberty can become judgmental over the one that has the liberty. This is what God is telling us not to do. But this is what naturally happens. I have seen churches split, not divide where they leave the church. No, 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 no. They're still together, but they split into the group of people who like to drink and the group of people who think that that's a sin. And these people talk about how messed up those are and they despise them. Oh, pff, what wimps. They, can't, they, they, don't, they think this is wrong, don't they? Well, they wouldn't have hung out with Jesus. And then the people over here who judge them and they're like, oh, they're setting a bad example and they got this issue and that issue and this issue and that issue. And then, and it's like, and I've heard, because I go from one group and they don't know what my opinion is because I just don't make a big deal about the issue, preferably. And then I go up and these people are bad-mouthing them and then I go, and these people are bad-mouthing them and I'm like, I want to find a new church. <laughs> <laughs> because the issue isn't the drinking, it's you're judging and despising. That's the issue. So that's what the scripture says. It says, look, just, just relax. It's not your job to judge them. Don't, and don't despise the other. So as we continue, Romans 14, verse 4, the second part. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. In other words, it's not like he's, this is not a salvation issue. If it's a salvation issue, yeah, divide the church. We do not compromise on that. But this is, this is a, a doubtful and questionable, like, ah, which way should we go? So we really try to tread lightly on those issues. One person esteems one day above another, talking about what day they worship on, Sunday, Saturday. Another esteems every day alike. So then here's where you go, okay, Paul, tell us which day is most important. Here's Paul. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. <laughs> go ahead, just, just make up your mind. Which, whichever one you're convinced of, go ahead and do that. Oh, you have to worship Saturday. No, I think what you mean is you have to worship Saturday. Because that's what you're convinced of in your mind. So you should do that. 
but don't put that on everybody else on the planet. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, and he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And, and the whole thing here is it's like, you're not my servant. I'm not your servant. So why am I judging you or despising you over issues when I have no authority in that area of your life whatsoever? It's just sort of a, a we used to say this in and out. If they caught, I'm on fries and they catch me over helping the people on the salad table. My, my, my boss would look at me and he'd seize my fries. My timer's like, beep, 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 you know. And he'd go, he go, Mike, know your role. <laughs> and I go, whoop, back over to fries. And that's kind of the point. Know my role. Just, just relax, man. This is, these things are okay to disagree on. And to still fellowship. And to not sweat it. And to even be like, yeah, I don't agree with you, but I don't care. And I've said that to people on issues. They go, so what do you think? So you don't drink? They're like, no, I don't drink. They're like, well, sometimes I like to sit down and have like a beer. Like once a week, I'll have a beer. Is that wrong? And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> And you're like, huh? Like, I don't care. You don't need my approval or disapproval on it. It's just like, just see what you're going to do. I don't, it's between you and the Lord. I don't have it. Now, if you're getting drunk, there's a clear scripture that says that that's a, a, that's a sin. But I'm talking about the, the non-clear issues. Then in uh, verse 9, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the, living, uh, the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? So we have the two different people mentioned there, the ones that judge and the ones that despise. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of, each of us shall give account of himself to God. That should be enough to settle you down. I don't think they should do that. Well, they'll have to give account of themselves to Jesus for that. Are you okay with that? Is Jesus qualified to deal with them? All right. Now relax. Is it like a big, is it a major issue or is it a minor issue? Well, it's a minor issue, but like I want it to be major because it bugs me. <laughs> God will deal with it. Verse 13, uh, therefore, let us, not, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Now, here's the resolution. Here's how we should handle when your conscience and theirs is different. We're told what not to do, but now here's, we're told what to do. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, everything he says next is totally one-sided. Everything he says is restrictions on the person who has the stronger conscience, not on the person that has the weaker conscience. That's really interesting, but that's what he says. Verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. And I read that and was like, so alcohol's not naturally automatically evil. Okay. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So I guess I can't drink. <laughs> Just being real. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Totally changes it. It's not about what's right and wrong. It's about the impact it has on your brother. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good... Oh, I'm enjoying this, this steak to the Lord, but yeah, I was offered this dumb idol I don't believe in. I don't care. It's just, but yet, my brother's over there and he cares. And I'm wounding him with my liberty. So the law of love says, don't. Therefore, verse 16, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's focus on those issues. 
For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So it's, I'm focused outward on the other. I want to bless my brother, bless my sister, and not just seek my liberties. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense, the weak conscience, or the man who eats because in front of or you know in the presence of the person with the weak conscience. So I'm eating with offense. I'm offending that person. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Stumbles, meaning that he says, oh, I'll drink the wine too. I'll eat the thing too. Offended, meaning that he's just like really struggling with the fact that you're doing that even though you don't care. And is made weak, as in he's you're just highlighting his weak conscience. You're just like making it the issue. I'm pushing the issue because I'm pushing the issue. And so I want to avoid those things. So verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. What does that mean? That means do it alone privately. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For what is whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you think and you feel, this, I just feel wrong about this, then don't do it for your own sake. You're, condemned, you're self-condemning here. So just obey your conscience. So to the weak person, to summarize Romans 14 and kind of conclude for tonight, if you have that weak conscience in an area, here's God's command to you, don't judge. That's it. That's actually the only command is to the weak person is first obey your conscience, of course, and second, don't judge others who have a different thought on that, and don't pretend that you have all this scripture to prove your point when you don't. Just obey your conscience and then don't judge them and be like, Lord, help me to just oh, relax. Um, to the strong one, there's a list of issues. <laughs> and this is just what God does. He says, here's, here's what I want you to do. If you have the strong conscience, for you, you're like, you know, you've got your liberty. You really get your liberty in Christ. And you're like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and there's no problem with it. Well, I would say this, that our culture today, um, moving into our, uh, uh, our American Calif Californian, you know, First Corinthian culture that we live in, which loves liberty, and loves all the things that I get to do. And that, that's not really a sin. And I can do that. That's kind of the attitude that we, we lean towards now. As opposed to say the Puritans or somebody of a, of a different generation. Who leaned in a much more conservative fashion than we do now. We tend to be the strong ones. Here's God's command. Don't, um, don't despise and look down on those as a defense mechanism. Well, they're just being stupid. Well, they're just lame. Well, they're less of a Christian. Because they can't do this. And they don't have this liberty like I have. That's not true. And you're now... Your real issue, what's worse than your liberty, is you're just hating on your brother or your sister. Second, if you're that strong person, don't grieve that person by letting them see you do the thing or be the thing that is offensive and hurtful to them. This is something that's very rarely practiced. But I think it's really important because the scripture talks about it. So that I know a couple where the husband, like I said, he thinks drinking's okay. He likes to have an occasional drink, doesn't have any issues with drunkenness or anything like that. And, um, and she's like totally weak conscience in that area. He never drinks, not for years. Because he says, hey, if that's going to offend my wife, I'm just not going to do it. And I'm like, man, it's almost like you read the Bible. <laughs> just don't do it. Or at least don't do it in front of them. Is it okay to do it privately? In fact, that's one of the options. Have your faith to yourself and God. You can do it privately. 
It's not like you're hiding a sin. You're just privately having your liberty so you don't offend anybody. This is very different than hiding a sin. If you're like in your backyard smoking your joint, that's a different issue. We're talking about things that are genuinely okay, but you know it might offend or stumble someone, so you just have it privately to yourself, and that's okay. That's all right. It doesn't have to be posted on pictures all over Facebook and everything like that, where, you, where everyone else has to now, now everyone else has to have discernment on whether they think I should be able to do that or not. It's like it's nobody's business. Just enjoy your liberty between you and the Lord. That's fine. Um, and you don't want to stumble them. That's another restriction on them. Don't stumble them because what can happen is they look at you doing it and then they are emboldened to do it. And let's be honest, and you guys are young adults at, at Hosanna, we know this, we, people do things in packs. Right? I mean, how many guys got motorcycles at Hosanna right now? <laughs> you know? And so if I have my liberty and I start exercising it in front of my buddies or my friends or my family, it will embolden them to do the same thing. It's just, it, 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 it will spread that. So if there's a question, if there's any question or doubt about it, then have it privately between you and the Lord. And if they live in the home with you, then just don't do it. It's called love. <laughs> and that is actually what the scripture is teaching here. So um, in marriage, I think the application is this. Make really, really strong compromises for your spouse. If they feel like something's wrong, like, I don't like that TV show you watch, it really, it, and they're, they're like stumbling over it or they're weakened by it or grieved by it, and I just continue to do it, and then I know that over here I'm sort of hurting them. Perhaps the best thing to do would just be to love them by just saying, okay, I won't. I mean, that would be the biblical attitude to have. Not because it's wrong, but because of love. And it totally flips our understanding. It's not about what I have the right to do. It's about how I can love my brother or sister. And that's how we deal with conscience issues. Um, and of course, this only applies to okay issues. We can't make things okay that are not okay. And, um, and anyways, I think that's going to be it for tonight. But I want to tell you guys, next week, what I want to get into is um, the issue of the Old Testament law. I think this is super huge in our Christian lives. To understand, how do I apply Old Testament scriptures? What, what do I do with the law? Like when someone says, okay, in the law it says, and then they quote something from the law. And then I'm like, well, that doesn't apply. We're in the New Testament now. And they're like, yeah, but it also says thou shalt not murder. Are you saying that doesn't apply? And some of these, hmm, what do we really do with this stuff? And how do we understand it so that we can have a better understanding and perhaps educate our consciences a little bit in those areas too? So uh, let's pray. And then you guys are welcome to hang out and fellowship. And uh, I'll be here if there's any questions. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this, uh, this time to have our consciences awakened about that issue of conscience. And we pray this. Help us to have a clean conscience, a conscience that's alert and awake and aware of what is genuinely good and genuinely bad. And especially, Lord, we pray this, we don't want to conform to this culture because there's things that we know in this culture that are presented as though they're okay. And um, we're shocked at what doesn't shock us anymore. We pray, Lord, shock us again. Shock us again. Show us the wrongness of wrong and the rightness of right. And help us to deal with the issues where our conscience might conflict with others that we would walk in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you've shown. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies ever